Paul reacted to this, and so there's no commendation whatsoever in this letter toward the Galatians, which is very different than his other epistles. Uh, he addressed this to several churches that he had established on his first missionary journey when he went uh, to several cities across Asia Minor and what is today called modern Turkey. And actually this summer I got a chance to visit a portion of that on a Mediterranean uh, Bible cruise that I took, which was really exciting. Uh, this letter was written about 49 years after the resurrection of Jesus, and it was just prior to the Jerusalem Council, and the council was one of the first formalized church uh, leadership meetings that they had. Uh, it was also, this was also the first controversy that was ever faced by the early church. Uh, it was extremely important to ensure that there was no distinction in any way between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, because if that got established early on in the church, that was going to be a fracture that was going to cause problems and throw the church into deep division for years and years to come. And the, the Jerusalem Council addressed this very issue in Acts 15, 1 through 30. And then when Karen did her introduction to Galatians, she said that this was the book from which we learn to live an abundant life in Christ, free from the law, and that it's for that reason that it's often called the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. We learned from Noreen's study in chapter 1 that the power of the gospel saves and liberates us from the rule of the law so that we can lead a victorious spiritual life. And then Lorraine gave her study in chapter 2 where she said we're justified by grace alone and Christ alone. And she said that we have to know the word of God for us to understand, live in, and defend the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. And Trudy shared that we don't need to add anything whatsoever to our salvation. We are justified by faith. And if you remember what she said, justified means just as if we never sinned. And the works of the law do not equal the superiority and the freedom that we have through our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then last week, Kathy covered how we have a new position as heirs in Christ, free from the bondage and slavery of the law. We've been adopted into the family of God. But she also warned us that with our new position in Christ, temptation didn't just disappear. We have to contend for our freedom every day. Our flesh and the Holy Spirit of God struggle within us like Jacob and Esau did in Rebecca's womb. And so tonight we'll find out what all that struggle is about when, and so we can find out how we can live out our freedom by walking in the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this evening, Lord, and we just thank you, Lord, that you do uh, give us the power Lord, to walk in your spirit, Father, to walk a walk worthy of being called daughters of the King of King and the Lord of Lords. Father, we thank you so much that your word is so direct and so specific, Lord, about the do's and the don'ts of our behavior that you don't want to see, Lord, not the rules of, of religion but of our behavior, Father. So we just thank you now, Father. We just pray that you guide us and lead us and direct us, Lord, in how we can walk more, more strongly in your spirit. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. So Paul's been warning the Galatians against going back into bondage and accepting that lesser life than what the Lord had for them. 
He had a very strong rebuke to, about them foolishly thinking that the works of the law and the flesh could somehow make them complete, that something that had begun in the spirit could not be finished in the flesh. Remember, as I said, there's no commendation or praise from Paul in the book of Galatians or to the Galatians, which is unique for all of the four letters that we'll study in this whole uh, gospel series. He keeps reminding and showing them several realities of salvation in Christ completely apart from the law. The last analogy he draws for them at the end of chapter 4 is the difference in being an heir born to a free woman, Sarah, and versus that born in bondage to a slave, Hagar. So this re- leads right into our study tonight, addressing three ways that we can maintain a spiritual walk, and that is through liberty, through love, and through the pursuit of holiness. I know you probably thought I was going to say the pursuit of happiness, and as you may remember, and the preamble to our Declaration of Independence, it's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I love that phrase because it comes within the context of them declaring that that is an inalienable right that's been given to us by our creator, our creator, our creator. (laughs) So that all that revisionist history that you hear going on now Our forefathers of this country did acknowledge that we had a creator that gave us certain attributes that we were to stand in. So now Paul, in his letter to to the Galatians, he talks about standing as well. He says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Paul is, what I say, rounding third base now, you know, with this chapter. We've gone through the first uh, three or four chapters of a lot of doctrine, a lot of theology, but now he's getting ready into the practical side of how we should live our life in Christ. He tells the Galatians to stand fast, which means to be firm, to persevere, to persist, literally to keep on standing in light of all of the freedoms that they have received through their salvation and the tremendous liberty that Christ alone bought and paid for them, they are to stand fast. In chapter 3, verse 13, he reminded them of this reality of their salvation and that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. John 8, 36 says, Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. For me, that says that we have arrived. For the Galatians, he was telling them, they have arrived. They are now completely free for now and into eternity. And I just loved it that in the worship earlier this evening that they sang the song, I am set free. I am set free. It's a wonderful song, a wonderful reminder of who we are in Christ. But like Rosalind Russell so bluntly put it in the movie Auntie Mame, Life is a banquet, and most poor suckers are starving to death. Paul used this similar imagery when he was warning the Galatians not to be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. You sometimes have to ask yourself, ladies, are you starving 
when you could be feasting on your freedom in Christ? Are you strangling under a bondage that we were never meant to be enslaved in as believers? Sometimes we can fall or lapse into that, that legalism, that lack of freedom. Kathy shared how the rules of religion, like coming to church three times a week or reading your Bible and praying for two hours a day, that these types of behaviors can become legalistic, but they do nothing to make us more godly or to elevate us in the eyes of the Lord. We don't have to do anything to enjoy the freedom we have in Christ. In fact, Paul says in verse 2 that works will do nothing for our salvation. We insult the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross when we substitute his divine, holy, perfect, redemptive work for the offerings of our own flesh. Paul emphasizes that we actually dig a deeper hole of debt because now we come up short of keeping the whole law. Remember, God requires us to be perfect before him. That was the impossible standard that the law set. But in addition to this debt we could never pay, our attempts to keep the law also alienate us from Jesus and from his grace because now we're trying to work our way into salvation. That, to me, is just like finding out that you're bankrupt and orphaned all on the same day. You know, I got no money, I got no daddy, I got nothing. That's how miserable some of us are trying to perfect our righteousness through religion, ritual, and legalistic rules. We forget that what Christ has done is finished. That's what he said on the cross. It is finished. We are free to live a spiritual life of liberty in Christ. In other words, you can lighten up and still be a light, ladies. You don't have to be so hard on yourself and others. Apply the grace of God in your life and toward others. Allow it to overflow in your life, inward and outward. Be who you are. And let others be who God created them to be. I'm not saying, and let's not get too twisted up here, that we compromise the core unchanging principles of the word of God. We never do that. But if that sister is wearing a dress or outfit that I don't like, that's more my problem than it is hers. Don't you think? I'm not to judge that. If that brother, you know, does hallelujah like this or does hallelujah like that, That doesn't mean that he's no less a child of God than I am or that he's worshiping any differently in his heart than I do. You can't be legalistic. Don't put yourself and others into bondage with rules you yourself would be hard-pressed to keep if compared to others. I'm going to ask you real quick. Just take a look around, just on either side of you or behind you. Do you see anybody that looks like your clone or your body double? Not so much. We need to graciously allow the diversity within the body of Christ that keeps our faith family from being boring. I love each and every one of you. And for those that I know deeply and wonderfully, you are not boring. Blanca, that's not personal. (laughs) But that's what the body of Christ is. It's, It's a diverse body of believers that God has brought together. We need to beware that we don't become bankrupt and orphaned by bondage of legalism, that rather than bringing us closer to Christ and each other, it only serves to separate us from him and from the grace that we have in him. 
Liberty also doesn't mean that we have the license to do whatever we please either. License can become a devil-may-care attitude toward God and the things of God. So we have to check ourselves that liberty doesn't become an excuse for the works of the flesh, uh, which we'll get into a little bit later. So when you look at it from this perspective, as Paul kind of lines it up here, you've got legalism on this extreme. You've got license on this extreme. And in the middle is liberty. So remember, don't live in the extremes. You want to live right in the middle, right where God has brought us, in the liberty of our salvation through grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. Next, Paul starts to direct the Galatians on how they can achieve the righteousness the Judaizers said only could come from the law. In verse 5, he says, For we, through the Spirit, Eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Paul introduces the Holy Spirit for the first time in this chapter. He hasn't mentioned it in any of the previous chapters. The Holy Spirit, as you know, is the third person of the triune God, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and the Son. And Paul says that Christians, through whom the power of the Spirit works, that we are yearning for the day when our faith will be rewarded with perfect versus imputed righteousness in Christ. This clearly speaks to the inability of our flesh to achieve any righteousness on our own. The Holy Spirit, hope, and faith all work toward our righteousness without us lifting a single finger toward works. This is what is present in the life of believers that liberates us from the shackles of achieving righteousness on our own merit. Then he transitions to the next level of Christian living, and he again gives the Galatians the reasons we can be confident we're liberated from the works of the law. He says in verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. In, In the liberty we have in Christ, rules don't achieve righteousness, nor are they of any value. The only thing of worth is our faith motivated through agape love. So live a life in Christ by exercising the liberty he sacrificed his life to give us. Lighten up. Be a light. That's okay. Stick to the biblical truths of the gospel, but don't allow license to become an excuse for the works of the flesh. Don't live in the extremes of legalism and in license. The Holy Spirit enables us to live a life of hope, faith, love, and liberty in Christ. And now we're going to see next, we covered liberty, now we're going to see how love is another way in which we can live a life in Christ. Paul teaches in the next passage that love fulfills the law. He says, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. Uh, when I read that first three words in that verse, you ran well, it just reminded me of a friend of mine that I had, a good friend years and years ago. And we walked together in the world, and we also walked together in the Lord. And we grew up in Christ together, kind of. We, we, we grew and we learned and we mature and we witnessed changes in each of us that we didn't think we would ever see. And it was wonderful. We had a hunger for the Lord and the Word, and we, we, we loved to serve and minister and worship Him. We fellowshiped at different churches, to be sure, but we always kept in touch, and we always shared what the Lord was doing in our lives, and it was just great. And then I noticed that, you know, I was hearing less and less from her. And so finally, when we were able to to get together, I said, you know, what's been going on with you? She says, oh, she says, you know, I started seeing somebody. I says, oh, okay, Uh, who is it? 
And she says, you know, you know, just some guy I'm dating. I says, well, you know, asked her some questions and found out that they were being sexually intimate with each other. And my heart just broke because I saw what God had done. I saw what he was doing, trying to do. I couldn't believe that she would give up all that freedom because, trust me, we were in bondage to that sinful, worldly living that we had. We would get drunk every weekend and party hardy, really hard, and have a good time. You know, we'd dance and we'd go out and we'd do all those things that, you know, in the economy of God don't mean anything. And we walked away from that. Well, you can probably, you know, kind of figure out what happened. I remember at one point asking her, you walked so strong for so long. What happened? She says, well, you know, life, life goes on and, and, and the Lord understands. Never hear somebody say that. Oh, the Lord knows. He understands. Well, you can figure out that she's no longer walking with the Lord. And it's so sad because at some point she didn't even realize Jesus was no longer beside her. She didn't realize he was gone. He can't walk with sin no matter how much he loves us. That's what happened. That's what's what's happening to the Galatians. They had run well, Paul said, but now something was keeping them from being obedient to the true gospel that they had started with. The persuasion that he refers to as the doctrine of salvation by works and did not come from the Lord Jesus Christ. The Judaizers had won them over with their doctrine of deceit, causing the Galatians to think they could finish in the flesh what was begun by the one who called them out of the futility of legalism into the freedom of his liberty. Like my friend, the Galatians were deceived into believing they could worship God in their own strength and in their own way. Paul plainly tells them they're on their own if this is the way they choose to go. They would be totally out of God's grace. And I love, again, the imagery that Paul uses in his letters. He talks about a yoke of bondage, about being a debtor, about running well. And now he comes to an imagery that I think most of us can relate to, and it comes out of the kitchen. So we're going to go through verses 9 through 12. It says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind. But he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. So just raise your hands real quick. How many bread makers do we have? How many people have ever made bread or rolls or anything like that? Well, if you ever have baked bread or rolls, you know that leaven is the chemical agent, and typically for us it's yeast, which actually is a kind of fungus, I found out, which makes the term fungus among us all the much more relevant. But anyway, (laughs) yeast that is a fungus causes the bread to rise through a process of fermentation. So the yeast or the leaven can double, triple, or quadruple your dough, depending on the recipe. And some of you guys, that if you're not big bakers, if you've been the unfortunate recipients of friendship bread, uh, <laughs> you know that sin is not your friend when you get some friendship bread, okay? Uh, <laughs> because that thing just goes on and on and on, and it just reproduces itself horribly and never stops. <laughs> So what starts out as a very small ingredient, it multiplies in a much greater quantity than its original size and weight. 
And so getting back to that bread analogy, you, you know, bread making comes in multiple steps and you allow the bread to rise and then you punch it down. It rises again, you punch it down again. And with the yeast in the bread, it will continue to rise until you eventually kill it by putting it in the oven and the heat will eventually kill it. For me, this is a very typical and practical example of what happens when we let a little sin or false doctrine influence us. Sin rises up, we have to punch it down. It rises up again, we have to punch it down. This is a minute-by-minute, day-by-day activity of our spiritual life. But this can't be done in our own strength to keep punching that sin down. It's only as we yield to the power of the Holy Spirit can we live an abundant and obedient life in Christ. And although the Galatians were in the midst of their struggle, Paul encourages them that he is confident that the Lord will keep them from departing from the liberty that they have in Christ and that he would also judge those causing that dissension among them, that they too would come under God's judgment. And that's mentioned in 2 Peter 2, verses 2, 3, and 9. But apparently some of the Judaizers had also said that Paul had agreed with their requirement of circumcision. But he points out that if that were true, he wouldn't be prosecuted and imprisoned for preaching Christ crucified. Remember, a lot of these are prison epistles. And apparently he's not falling in line with all of the Pharisees and the Judaizers because they're prosecuting and persecuting him because he says Christ alone. No works involved. So clearly, Paul had not changed his message of the gospel over all that time, from the time that he established that church to to the time that he wrote the letter. And he wished that the Judaizers would turn the circumcision knife on themselves and leave his precious church children alone. No good shepherd allows a wolf to come in and mess with his sheep. And when I read about how fiercely Paul tries to correct and, and, and defend his, his children, his spiritual children, I also see the same love and fierce protectiveness in Xavier, how he is always sharing and caring with us about not to go astray, not to get lost in the deceitful doctrine that is out there in the world right now and in a lot of churches. He has the same heart as Paul. In the next passage, Paul comes back to remind the Galatians that their liberty is tied to love, the love that enables them to exercise their freedom by serving rather than indulging their flesh and turning on one another. Verses 13 through 15 say, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Free of all the constraints of legalism, we can express our love toward one another in selfless service and ministry. Jesus said loving our neighbor as ourselves was the second greatest commandment. And together with the first of loving God, that is the totality of the law manifested. Instead of liberty freeing them to love the Lord and each other selflessly and completely, the Galatians had started in on each other. And when that happens, God and nobody else is served and appetites of the flesh run amok. You see, there is no liberty without love. 
We should remember the analogy of how a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So when sin rises up and false doctrine starts to bite at us, we have to punch it down again and again. And free of all of the constraints of legalism, we can express our love toward one another in selfless service, fulfilling the law and going even beyond the works of the law. So love is the key to making our liberation operational. Now Paul gives some practical advice and some examples of the differences between walking in the flesh and walking in the spirit. And only through walking in the spirit can we be in the pursuit of holiness, the holiness that God commands of us. He says in verses 16 through 18, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Walk in this passage means a continual action, a habitual day-by-day lifestyle. It, it, it denotes progress, moving forward in our spiritual maturity, in our spiritual walk. As I said earlier, this, the Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. It's not an it, it's a he. And he is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Son. He is a person with a divine personality and character. He is sometimes referred to in a way which emphasizes his work and power when he's referred to as the spirit of truth in John 15, verses 26. And the Holy Spirit is referred to as the helper in John 14, 16, and 26, and chapter 15, 26. He's written of in the Old Testament in Psalm 51, 11, and Isaiah 63, 10. He conceived Jesus through Mary, we're told, in Matthew 1, verses 18 and 20. We are baptized in him, according to Matthew 3, 11 and Mark 1. And we are filled with him, according to Luke 1, 14 and Acts 2, 4. Chuck Smith said, when we walk in the spirit, we allow him to rule over our minds and control our thoughts. When we walk in the spirit, we have fellowship with God. We also have strength and power over the flesh with the ability to see the consequences of following the fleshly life. So we are completely dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome the lusts of the flesh. We are to follow God, not rules, in order to walk in the Spirit. The flesh represents our mind, our will, and our emotion and the sinful nature of the natural man that has lots of leaven in it. That natural nature, that flesh is in opposition to God. Sometimes we think life in Christ is supposed to be stress-free, and that always amuses me because I don't think I've had a day in my walk with the Lord where I haven't had to be constantly conscious of my, of Him and of what my, what my standing is in Him. But as Kathy pointed out last week, the war begins when we commit our lives to Christ. Satan tries to pull us back into bondage and into the things of the world. He wants to steal our liberty in Christ by twisting the things God has provided for us to glorify him into carnal, selfish pursuits. Recently, uh, I went to see a play called uh, Jekyll and Hyde. And you guys probably all know the story about Jekyll and Hyde. And it was a really good play. I was kind of surprised they would make a musical out of Jekyll and Hyde, but they did. 
and did a really good job, actually. Um, but it's the story of a doctor, and, and, and I guess I didn't know all the backstory of the original writing, but he wanted to help free men from the bad uh, character and the bad ways that they had about them that was hindering them from living healthy, you know, mental and physical lives. And so he felt that he could create some kind of potion that would help free men of this very thing in them that caused them not to be happy, not to live a happy, wholesome life in his, his estimation. So, of course, he concocts this, this formula and he drinks it. Well, what ends up happening is it releases those things, absolutely, but it releases him to exercise the most base character in human nature, the sin nature. He became the most evil, despicable, immoral, base person you could ever want to encounter. And most people did not want to encounter him. And those who did, did not have a very good experience. So you can see that the flesh, when it's released and free and liberated without any restraint, because that's what this chemical did, that is a bad thing to have happen to anybody or to unleash on any society. We have to have the control of the Holy Spirit in our lives so that we can live peaceable lives. The flesh represents our, our, the way that we indulge that base side of our nature. I love this passage that Paul wrote in Romans seven fifteen through 20 because it's very similar to the Jekyll and Hyde because there was that struggle between his regular self, the good self, and the evil self. And I kind of see that in this passage. He said, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in time, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will do I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now, he's not making an excuse like the people that say the devil made me do it. But you can believe that if a pillar of the church like Paul struggled and no one was more zealous for the Lord than he, we shouldn't be surprised when our flesh rises up and we have to punch it down again and again and again. The spirit and the flesh do not live in peaceful coexistence, which that little silly bumper sticker, you know, coexistence, got all the little religions all looking happy together. That, that, that doesn't happen in, in the real life of our spiritual walk. But, Paul says, the battle the Galatians have been trying to keep the law in the energy of their flesh doesn't exist when they allow the spirit to guide and to direct them. The flesh will fail, ladies, every single time, but the spirit is faithful. Paul spells out a list of a minimum of 17 acts of the flesh. I say a minimum because he didn't pretend that that was even an exhaustive list because he says, and the like, knowing that there had to be more of them. But it was a start. And he says, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, 
selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you before, in the, just as I told you in the past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The fruit of the flesh are out there for the world to see, and in many cases they celebrate it when they see you indulging in what, the, what they do because you're no different than they are then. They're clearly recognized, and they're figuratively and literally naked to the world sometimes. I'm not going to address each of these sins individually, but they're groups that they tended to fall in that I saw. And the first group is the group of sexual sins. And this covers any illicit or immoral sexual activity with anyone other than your own male husband or a husband with his female wife. And I say that because no voter proposition or court is going to change God's mind about who and what marriage is intended. So if you're outside uh, the realms of marriage as God defined it, then you're in sin. Any sexual desire fulfilled outside of marriage between a man and a woman is a sin. Also included under the meaning of these sexual sins but not specifically called out are homosexuality, bestiality, incest, pornography, debauchery, which can lead to orgies, sexual innuendo, which can be talking dirty, uh, any form of self-pleasure, indecency, and wantonness, which is usually considered to be uh, promiscuity or teasing. Jesus mentioned some of these in Matthew 15, 19, and Mark 7, 21, and Paul again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 and 19. But he added that we should flee sexual immorality because not only is it a sin against our own bodies, it's a sin against the indwelt Holy Spirit, that being God within us. Another reminder that the spirit and the flesh do not live in peaceful coexistence. The second group represents the sin of false worship or religion or gods. And paganism was very common among Gentile people. And you have to remember that the Galatians were Gentiles. Remember, they were not of the Jewish uh, nation of Israel. So within those practices include the occult, witchcraft, drunkenness, drug use, magic, incantations, and the use of charms or amulets. And I notice, you know, today you see very popular the use of uh, crystals. And then I guess they got this... Hamsa or Hamesh, the eye that's supposed to, you know, watch over you and keep and protect you and keep away the evil eye kind of thing. I guess it's also called the hand of Mary as well. So it's it's cuts across all types of religious and cultic uh, uh, persuasions. And the third group is against your fellow man, and that includes hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, and envy. And and we've all demonstrated or experienced most, if not all, of these sins at one point in our lives. These manifest themselves in many ways, like snapping at our husbands or children, allowing bitterness to get hold of our hearts, being contrary or quarrelsome, or striving after our own self-interest at the expense or to the exclusion of others, resisting the authority placed over us, and choosing to believe a lie over the truth because it tends to suit us better. And then the fourth group makes up the sins against society, and that's murders, drunkenness, and revelries. And these sins erode our culture and threaten our safety and security. Murder is, is obvious. America is almost immune to the number of people murdered on our streets or, in the, or the number of babies killed in the womb. And that insensitivity is destroying us from the inside out. 
People who make a habit of getting drunk eventually endanger themselves and others on the street or in their homes. And revelries such as riotous, drunken partygoers like those at Mardi Gras or Carnival become crude and embarrassing and often destructive to the shops and the merchants that uh, lay waste in their party zones. But again, Paul has to remind the Galatians that he's told them this before, adding that people engaged in this type of ungodly behavior, unrestrained by the Holy Spirit, will forfeit their heritage and be denied the kingdom of God. He's pretty much saying you're going to hell. That's what he said. He says, you're going to hell. You know, Xavier did a study on Sunday, and he changed it because it started out, you're going to hell. Because you are. Paul doesn't pull any punches with his spiritual children. A habitual practice of sin is, will separate us from God. However, he, this is not the final thought he leaves with them. In his closing in this chapter, he gives them the contrast of how the flesh can be brought into submission through the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is the climax of this chapter, and it gives us hope and promise to the believer, knowing that within us lives the power to live a life beyond our sin nature. In fact, these nine characteristics are godly ones that imitate our Heavenly Father, whose children we are and should resemble. By practicing these traits in our lives, we conform to the image of our Heavenly Father and the attributes of his holiness. We serve a holy God, and he calls us to live a life of holiness. Peter continues this thought in 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 16. He says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. So the liberty granted by grace and faith in Christ manifests in our love for one another leads us to this last point of the pursuit of holiness. Love is the same form of love we saw in verse 6, agape love, and it means affection and goodwill and brotherly love. It's a willful respect that is promoted by the Holy Spirit. It's a love that leads to self-sacrifice. And God demonstrated this characteristic of his person through his son who laid down his life for us. In fact, in 1 John 4, 8 and 16, God tells us that God is love. So we are to walk in pursuit of this aspect of his holiness. Joy is a gladness that comes from knowing that we are his and he is ours. It's the joy of our salvation of God's redemptive work in us that should give us joy. Not happiness, because that's fleeting. That'll just come and go. But joy should be present in the life of every believer every single day, knowing that we are right with the Lord regardless of our circumstances. 1 Peter 1.8 says, Because we believe Jesus has saved us, we rejoice with joy inexpressible. David knew of that joy as well, writing in Psalm 21.1, that the king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation, how greatly shall we rejoice. Joy is an important attribute of God that we should practice daily. 
Peace is another trait we possess that indicates the power of God working in us. It's an inner peace that comes from a right standing with the Lord and is part of our inheritance in Christ. Jesus tells us in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And the Lord not only gives us his peace, he's the regal representative of peace. Isaiah 9, 6 says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Ephesians 2.14 tells us he himself is our peace. His peace, his shalom, which means wholeness, means that we are complete in our peace in God. Next, we have long-suffering and kindness that go hand in hand, providing us the patience and the compassion to demonstrate God-like character, just as he did for, for us and as he does toward us. How much more patient and kind could we expect God to be in light of our sinful nature? I wonder sometimes why God just hasn't been done with us and blown us off the face of the earth. His restraint and tenderness toward us are loving reminders of who he is and who he calls us to be, patiently exercising goodness toward others. Titus 3, verses 4 through 6 says, But when the kindness and the love of our God, of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Christ Jesus, our Savior. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, again, all attributes that call us to have a moral, upright heart in life. We are to pursue the holy character of trustworthiness and meekness, just like Jesus, submissive to God's will for us. Colossians 3, 12 through 13 gives the example, and it says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against one another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must do. And last but not least, we are to exercise control. This virtue of holiness is one of one of mastery over our desires and passions, and it's one which Jesus Christ demonstrated because he walked a sinless life on this earth. And it's part of our holy character building, as Peter reminded the Galatians almost 20 years later after this letter. He says in Second Peter 1, 5 through 7, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. Finally, we come to Paul's punchline that sums up how we are to enjoy real, true life, active and blessed in God's kingdom. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The works of the flesh are all selfish. They all focus on you, on me. But the works of the spirit are unselfish and focus on glorifying God. So the simple question we have to ask ourselves on a daily basis, does this gratify me or does this glorify God? And that'll be the test of whether or not you're walking in the flesh or walking in the spirit. 
God wants us to walk in obedience, not victory. This is from Jerry Bridges from the book, his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, which I strongly recommend all of you guys get a copy of. It's a wonderful book. But he says, God wants us to walk in obedience, not victory. Obedience is oriented toward God. Victory is oriented toward self. Victory is a byproduct of obedience. That is how we should walk. All the works of the flesh are contrary to the character and nature of God. All the works of the spirit are consistent with and coincide with his attributes. So when we walk in the spirit, we walk in the pursuit of conforming to the holiness of God because we are walking to imitate his character. This is why the works of the flesh and the works of the law are the same. And this is also why the works of the law and the works of the flesh cannot fulfill the righteousness of God. Only by walking in the spirit can we fulfill the righteousness of God and be successful in the pursuit of holiness. Liberty, love, and the pursuit of holiness are only possible when we walk in the spirit. But when we do, we walk in the image of our father in heaven who lives within us and through us. And when I think about walking in the spirit, I'm going back in the day a bit. But you guys remember the song, I'm walking in sunshine. I'm walking in sunshine, well, don't it feel good? It feels good when you walk in the spirit and the sun is shining on us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much that you do give us the power and the capability to walk in your spirit, Lord. That it is not a work of our flesh, Father, but it is a daily picking up our cross, a daily punching down that sin, a daily being very aware and cognizant of who you are by studying your word, by reading your word, by praying your word, Lord God. We thank you so much, Father, that we do not have to carry this in our own flesh, that you have freed us from the bondage of living by the law, by legalism, and that you also save us from license and allow us to live in your liberty, in your love, in pursuing your holiness. In Jesus' name, amen.